If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. I encourage you to turn there as we get ready. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? We started the week by celebrating fathers. We spent several days in the middle watching the news to see if they would find Ocean Gate Titan, going through the grief of that loss. At the same time, we watched three named hurricanes or storms form in the Atlantic moving our way. If you haven't watched the news all week, they're not coming this way. They seem to be moving everywhere. So I, there were a couple of you that stood up and were about to run out. I saw you. I'm glad I stopped you. Uh, we watched a potential mutiny in, in Russia, and it's been an interesting week. So to hear the children talk about the fact that God is always there is one of those anchors that we need to instill in our children. Um, forget the children for a second. We need to instill that in us. We need in our hearts, our minds, our spirits, a sense of an anchor of truth that God is. He has been, he is currently, and he is going to be where we will be in the future. We need to model that for our children. We need to instill that in them so that they grow up with that sense of security in a world that is so crazy. We all need to just kind of rest in that. One of the anchors we have through God's spirit is the word of God, where we can go to the word, we can find truth, we can find that sense of rest and calm and conviction, and we can learn and we can be challenged and we can grow. And so it's with great joy that we open up uh, the book of Ephesians this morning. We'll continue in our series called Known, where we are knowing what God has revealed to us. We are knowing him. Paul repeatedly prays that we would understand and know and grasp the hope that we have in Christ, and we come and reflect on that this morning. A little fact for you this morning. I really, really love a good jump scare. You know jump scares, right? Where you're not thinking something's gonna happen and all of a sudden, ah! you know, see, I got you. See, it's one of those moments where in time something just kind of jumps out startling, gets your attention, and um, it, it just, it, it's just pure joy. If you ask any of my children, one of my favorite things to do is when I'm dropping them off for an event, as they walk around the front of the car, you know what I'm going to do? I'm honking, and I honk loudly, and I, I find joy. <laughs> I find joy in giving a jump scare. For a while, our family had this, uh, this treat. I call it a treat, where somebody had given us a life-size, freestanding, kind of an image of a celebrity, and we would hide it around the house, in a closet, in a bathroom, inside the front door, so that if somebody would open that door, there's a six-foot-four figure of you-know-who standing there. But it's not so much fun being on the receiving side of those, but man, it is so much fun being on the giving side of those. We're going to talk about a mystery this morning, and there is a connection between jump scares and mysteries. Because if you slow a jump scare down, what you have is one person knowing what's coming, knowing the timing, knowing the means, knowing the manner, knowing the reaction, and one person having no clue what is happening. There's no way for them to know. There's no way for them to guess. There's no way for them to piece the puzzle together in enough time. And at some point in time, the two things come together in just a beautiful moment of joy for one and total startled scaredness in the other, right? In the Bible, what this is called is called a mystery. A mystery is something that God knows, God holds, 
God prepares, God plans, God sees out through the corridor of time, a moment in time where he's going to bring about something that he's been planning. No one else can figure this out. It's not like you grab Jessica Fletcher and Sherlock Holmes and figure this out. This is something that God has planned, that he's held secret, and at some point in time, he opens it up for his people to see. He reveals it to them. He makes it known to them. This is called a mystery. It's a major theme through the writings of Paul. In the book of uh, to his, his letter to the Romans, his letter to the Corinthians, his letter to the Thessalonians, his letter to Timothy, his letters to Ephesians and Colossians, all of them speak about this mystery that was entrusted to Paul so that he could share the truth to the audience that the Lord had given him to share it. Here in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul comes back to this issue of mystery. In chapter 1, he hinted at it. Chapter 2, and, and Francois led, it, led us through it last week, he describes it in detail without using the word as much. Here in chapter 3, though, he pauses and he opens up the mystery so that we can understand. It's a slow-mo jump scare for us. And as we look at the mystery, we ought to be challenged to reflect on God's goodness, his timing, his wisdom through time. And the reaction is not just to say, wow, God is great. The reaction is, God knows what he's doing. I can trust in him, and I better be responsible to follow after him. That's really what Paul is wanting to do. So as we look at chapter 3 together, remember the context of the whole. If you remember, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are really truth. It's instruction. It's Paul reminding us about what to think about and what to be motivated by. In the, second, in the last four, or the four through six, Paul is really getting into the application part. Not that the first half's not applicable, but he's really teaching in order to give strong application. And so throughout this entire study, we need to remember that Paul's point for all of us is walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. What you know about God, what you know about Christ, what you believe about him, what you understand he has done for you and is doing in you is going to result in one thing, that you walk worthy of the gospel that has been shared with you. And we need to keep that locked into our brains, even as we turn, turn to chapter 3 this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll read, and then look at the revelation to the apostle first. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, you are a great God to, in such a creative and perfect and wonderful and, and perfectly timed way, you opened up this reality of Christ being the one to unite all things with you. God, you entrusted this to the Apostle Paul. He in turn entrusted it to others who in turn entrusted it to us. And we want to learn about this morning as we open up your word. I thank you that you've given us your word, that you've given us your spirit, that we can understand your word. I thank you, Father, that you, uh, that you empower us, that we can obey your word. I thank you, Father, that you open up our eyes and open up our ears and open up our hearts this morning that we can hear something from you about what you have for us as we leave this place today. Help us to be changed, Father. That's what we want. I pray that you would move through us today. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at two things big picture this morning. We're going to look at what has been revealed to the Apostle Paul, and then we're going to look at the relevance to us as disciples of his. Let's look, though, at Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring the light for everyone who is the, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, did you get that? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is on his way towards a prayer you remember what we've seen over the, the course of these weeks so far in the study, Paul begins with a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a blessing to God and it erupts in this great three-part praise of, of all things to the praise of, of God's glory, what God has done in Christ and as a result in us. He ends chapter one with a great prayer. God, I pray that these audience will know the, the hope that I have, that we have in you the hope that we have because of Christ. He moves on in chapter two to talk about this disconnect between the, the, uh, the life we had before Christ, our deadness, and the life we have in Christ, and the disconnect we had, Gentile and Jews, that God has brought all those things together in one. And which would be his theme for this reason, chapter three, verse one, should be the prayer that he'll actually come back to in 14. So Paul is what we could call Captain Tangent. He likes talking about something, and then it kind of gets him on a trail. And then he's on a mountain peak somewhere looking at trees, and then he notices a bird, and he sees the wing, and he knows how the wing causes flight, and then he thinks about clouds. And somehow he's going from here to there, and it makes sense somehow in his brain. I can't wait to meet him and just say, Paul, pull yourself together, my friend. Just bring some focus. Help us. But Paul gets so excited and passionate about the gospel message that he has that he can't stop himself. And we see throughout his letters that he'll be writing this way and then wham, he's over here out in the field somewhere. This is one of those examples, I think. If you look down at verse 14, he comes back to this phrase for this reason. Francois is gonna take us through it next week as we hit a, the second prayer that I think Paul was starting at here and then he took a left turn. But in this section, Paul takes time to talk about what had been revealed to him. It's a very important thing to Paul. It's the revelation that God has given to him particularly. His conversion was fantastic. And he first talks about this thing that was entrusted to him. I like that word, entrusted. The revelation of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ was entrusted to Paul. Paul uses interesting words as you look throughout this. In verse 2, he says, it's a stewardship. Oh, our stewardship is, right? Stewardship is when someone has something valuable that they give to you and you see the value of it and you hold on to it. 
And you treat it with care and concern. Why? Because it's something that's valuable to them. It's not yours to keep. It's yours to use according to the, the, the purpose that it was created for. Paul talks about the gospel being a stewardship of God's grace to him. He speaks about this having been given to him that he might know, that he might have insight into this mystery of Christ, a, a mystery that he understands was not known in past generations as it had now been made known to him. So he sees that this is something God has been building over time, but has not been clearly laid out before until now. And he gets this and he, and he cherishes it. He speaks about this being revealed by the Spirit of God and in a great way that Paul is so specific about his own unworthiness. He says, I am the very least of the saints, but yet this gospel, this truth, this mystery was entrusted to me. And we'll see later on in our time together that this ought to, like it did in Paul, erupt in a sense of personal responsibility. Now, some may look at this and say, well, Paul is just trying to cover his backside. He's just trying to defend himself. He's just trying to make sure that people know that he's got the, the goods to deliver this message. And Paul certainly does that throughout his, apostle, or his letters. Nearly in every letter, Paul will take some time to defend himself, to say, hey, I was, uh, I was against the gospel, but this is what God did in me. This is what God has called me to do. I don't see this so much as Paul defending, as Paul exalting this mystery that had been handed to him. What is the mystery? The mystery has always already been hinted at several times. We're going to talk about it more as we go on this morning. But Paul is empowered to deliver this message. He calls it the unsearchable riches. He's empowered to give these riches to the Gentiles, which is the second thing we see about this revelation, is that it's to be shared with the Gentiles. Shared in two senses. One, Paul feels compelled to share the message with Gentiles. The other part is even more groundbreaking for Paul and for the first century Christian, and that is the Gentiles are now allowed to be saved. How many of you are Gentiles? How many of you have no idea what a Gentile is? How many of you think it's some form of gentle and you're not sure you want to be that? A Gentile is anybody who is not a Jew, right? So through the course of time, you have this conflict between those who are in and those who are out those who had access to God and those who didn't, those who had received the covenant and those who hadn't, those that were in and those that wished they were, those that, were, that had hope and, and confidence and trust in God yet future and those that were outside looking in saying, I wish I had something like that. Historically, that's what we see throughout God's word, those that are God's people and those who are not God's people. But Paul says, the mystery that has been given to me is, look at verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are what? Fellow heirs. Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. I love that. That these who were once over here, this is where we were last week earlier in chapter 2. The Gentiles were at one point separated, disconnected from God and the promises, disconnected from any sense of hope, disconnected from anything that would, would give them a sense of anchor for the future. Why? Because they weren't God's selected people. Let me bring this home. We were not God's selected people. 
We were on the outside looking in. We were over here saying, man, I wish. Paul says the mystery is that not only do I preach this to the Gentiles, but the mystery is that now the Gentiles are able to be grafted in. They're able to be brought into the promises of, of God. How awesome is that? Now, you and I don't think in these terms because we've always been in, right? In fact, if we're honest, we think we are the ones that are in and everybody else is out. Look at those bad people out there. They don't have what we have. We have actually made ourselves arrogant like the Jews at times. Paul reminds us that at that time, we were separated from God. Now, through the work of Christ, through the fact that he lived a perfect life, died on the cross as the perfect and eternal sacrifice for our sins, we are no longer outside, we are no longer dead, but now we are alive and we are connected. And by faith, we can be worked into the covenant promises of God. What an incredible reality for you and for me who have been born again. If you're here this morning and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer outside, you are now inside. And you are sharing in the inheritance. You are sharing in the membership of God's body in Christ. You are sharing in all of the blessings. And we forget that. We just, we, we kind of drop it down to, well, are you a Christian or not? Let's, let's think bigger than that. Are you grafted into the covenant promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ? That's a huge story. It's a great mystery. And it's not one that was known beforehand until Paul began preaching it. It was hinted at, but not known in its reality. If you look through the pages of Scripture, we see it. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God has called Abram to go and to be in the, the, the seed of a new nation. And he says, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's no stipulation. It's not all the Jewish nations. It's all the people of the earth will be blessed through you, through your faith, through the, the faith that was entrusted to you as righteousness. Through the wilderness wanderings, as God picks up Moses, drops him into Egypt, calls him to lead the people out into the wilderness and gives them a, a life to live by, there's a constant reference to those who are outside who want to participate in. Those who are outside that want to believe in God. Those who are outside that want to submit themselves to the culture of God's people. In the book of Isaiah, I was just reading it this last week, Isaiah 56. Just make a note to read the first. I'm going to read it right now. <laughs> Isaiah 56. So, so good. This is years before um, Jesus was born. Years before Jesus died on the cross. Listen. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who do does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, keeps his hand from doing evil. Let not the foreigner who, was joined who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does, does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather, gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, this is during a time where there was a very specific nation, Israel, and those outside that nation were not chosen. But the prophet very clearly, clearly hints at a day where others, and those others are us, Others will be allowed to submit themselves to the Lord. Others will be allowed to come to the Lord. Others' prayers will be honored by the Lord. Others' worship will be pleasing to the Lord. And then we become fellow citizens with the saints. Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter, both had groundbreaking experiences in their life that made it very, very clear that, that the Jews were not just this isolated portrait of people who, did, who had something that nobody else was offered. Now the Gentiles were brought into this so that, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, God has created one new man. It's not male, female. It's one new being, one new existence, one new entity that is a unification of all in the person of Jesus Christ. What was separated is now united. What was dead is now alive. And you and I rejoice in the fact that Paul grasped this mystery, that he passed this mystery along. He shared it with the Gentiles so that you and I can be sitting here because Paul was faithful to deliver it. The third thing Paul tells us is maybe my favorite part of this. You thought I was excited so far. <laughs> so that the revelation of Paul was made known to the angels. This is really interesting. Verse 10. So that, I told you a couple weeks ago, so that's one of my favorites. Therefore is one of my favorites. For is one of my favorite words. I always highlight them or make them bold in my Bible. So that through the church, what is the church? It's obviously us, right? This passage is about Boca Raton Community Church. No, it's not just us. It is all of those who have been united in Christ by faith. All of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as the sole opportunity for unity with the Father. They, through time, have been united into what Paul calls one new man. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God, manifold, this word means complicated. It means multifaceted. It refers to one of those things that you can look at from multiple angles and see something different each time. You have those things in your life where you're like, wow, this is, this is really cool. Wow, this is really cool. And you're just kind of seeing it. The multifaceted complicated wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. And I read that and I say, okay, so all those people who are dead and gone are in heaven now and now they're seeing this. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Whenever Paul talks about the heavenly bodies, the, the, the authorities and rulers in the heavenly places, he's talking about angels. So how is it that angels are learning about the wisdom of God? 
Remember, angels are not all-knowing, right? So we talk about sometimes that angels are either, you know, resurrected humans that, you know, when our spirits or when our bodies die, we become angels. It's not the case. Angels in Scripture are created beings that are, that are powerful, yes. They seem to be immaterial. They have personality, it seems. They are able to be commanded to go and deliver messages like Gabriel. They're able to fight in some kind of battles like we see in certain passages of Scripture. So there's some reality to them, but they're not all-knowing, and they're not all-powerful, and they're not omnipresent. They're not God. Paul says that when the mystery is revealed to the church... It's embraced by individuals so that they are united to make a body that is glorifying to God and they live that out before the world. That's not just the world that sees it, but it's angels learn about what? The manifold power? No. The manifold wisdom of God. Do you ever just think about the wisdom of God? You ever just sit back and think, God is so wise. He knows just when to do things. He knows how to do things. He knows how to say things. He knows how to bend and move things to accomplish his purposes. He knows how to influence the hearts. And he is always right. God is so wise. And when we embrace the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we live it out in our lives, and that it's evident in the unity that we experience as a body, angels marvel at the wisdom of God because they've never seen wisdom of God like that. Now think about that for a second. You living your life in unity with the people around you are informing angels of what God is like in a way that they can't understand on their own. John Stott is a great theologian of last, last century, said this. He says, it is through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. It is through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to angels. I love that. I was just strolling a little bit this morning as I was thinking and, and preparing for today. And there's, if you get a chance, drive to the west side of the parking lot. There's one of those, what's those big bright orange trees? Anybody know what they're called? That one? Go see it. It's beautiful. That's out there. I took a picture, but you couldn't see it on my iPhone. Just... Do a parade. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for about 50 cars to be lined up rolling around that, that backside of the parking lot. It is glorious. Seriously glorious. And when you look at that, I just say, God, you are so creative. How can you create something so incredibly beautiful? That's what God's creation does for us. It shows his glory, his creativity, his, his awesomeness. Stott reminds us that it's the church, it's the way that we live out as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's the unity that we are showing and the way that we conduct ourselves in the world that is revealing his wisdom to angels. I think we need to remember that we have a responsibility in that way. So Paul has, he's rolled out here how and what and what he's, what's been revealed to him through what was entrusted, through what should be shared, through what was made known to angels, but let's talk about the relevance to us as disciples. Disciple, as we know from the studies this year, that that disciple is someone who follows after. And we use the word mentor in our days. We use a word of of teacher-student. 
I want, I shared a couple weeks ago, I want Paul to be a mentor of mine where I go into my reading of his word and say, Paul, how do you think about things? Paul, what are you motivated by? Paul, what do you do in situations like this? Because I want to be like this. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. So in a very real way, we can be discipled by Paul. So if Paul is so seriously committed to this mystery and it changes him, shouldn't it change us too? Shouldn't it alter the way that we think, alter the way that we act? So I want to look at three ways, three aspects of our lives that ought to be impacted by this mystery now given to us. First is a sense of responsibility for the gospel. As I mentioned before, Paul is, uh, he sees the value of the gospel. He sees how much it has changed him and it's changed the lives of the people around him. He, He sees it as something that God, because God did literally give it to him. So he's holding this valuable treasure that he wants to use for its purposes. He doesn't want to keep to himself. And I immediately think of the difference between Frodo and Gollum. You weren't expecting me to go there, were you? Thanks for the laughter. Frodo and Gollum, both of them carried a ring. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, if you don't have the patience for a long movie, read the book. If you think movies are lame, just get the book anyways. Either one, you've got Frodo, you've got Gollum. Both of them held the ring. Both of them carried the ring. Both of them felt the burden of the ring, but they did something different with the ring, didn't they? You had Gollum on one side, prizing and loving and and cherishing, and I promised Jan I wouldn't do the voice, but I want to so badly. (laughs) That he's holding this precious ring, and he doesn't want to let it go, and he's willing to kill others for it because he wants to defend it so fiercely. He loves it, he cherishes it, it's precious to him, but he himself is, is being eaten alive by the burden of this ring and its glory, right? You have Frodo, who carries the weight of the ring on his neck, and he's on this quest not to keep it for himself, although he's tempted to do so. What does he do with it? He is taking it to do what it was supposed to do, which is to be destroyed, right? That was his mission. That was his his calling. We need to be less like Gollum in holding this gospel and saying, oh, it's so precious to me. It's so special. I'm not going to share it with anybody because it's mine, 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 mine. I'm almost going to do the voice again, but I'm going to stop. We need to be more like Frodo, where we, bear, we carry the burden of the gospel because we see the value, but we do what it's supposed to do. We do with it what we're supposed to do with it. And what is that? To give it away, to share it, to pass it on. And it's not just in the way that you speak. It's certainly in that. It's not just the truth that you communicate or the truth that you defend. It certainly is that. It's the way that you live your life. Remember, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're not supposed to just hold this gospel and cherish it. We're supposed to hold, cherish, and live it out. It's supposed to change us. It's supposed to make us different. And we need to bear a sense of responsibility for the gospel deeper than even what we've experienced in the past. And some of you may say, all of us may say, we love the Lord, we love the gospel, we love the truth, we love the Bible, we love all of these things, but do we sense responsibility to do with it what it was intended to do? which is to unite all things together in Christ Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. And that's the second area that I think bears relevance to our lives that we need to meditate on. We need to think about the unity that comes through the gospel. 
Look back in chapter 1. Paul, in the middle of this great praise, verse 9, it's a very long sentence, so I can't start at the beginning of the sentence, but making known to us the mystery, there's the word, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in him, where are those things? Things in heaven and things on the earth. So if Paul is right, and I'm assuming he is, that God had a plan that was going to culminate in a perfect event that would accomplish something incredible, far beyond what we can imagine, and that is to unite all things that are above with all things that are below and all the people that are in it united in Christ being one new man in Christ. What concerns me is that we are not so much living, I'm talking about us as a church now because it's closest to home, us as a community in Boca Raton, us as a country, talking about the church in the country particularly, we are fellow citizens, fellow members, fellow heirs, fellow partakers in the gospel but yet we live as if we are enemies and divided, don't we? Even among us, we live divided. Now, Francois led us where we should have gone last week, which is burying, burying the hatchet, asking for forgiveness, releasing wrongs, all of those pieces. But I want to think this morning about what we need to do to exert energy in building unity. Because it's one thing to say, you know what, I'm going to forgive that person. It's another thing to say, I'm going to walk together with this person, right? They're both important. You need to go past the old stuff, but you need to take on the new stuff. And we need to develop spirits in our, in our lives, hearts in our lives, minds in our lives that can look at disagreement and not despise each other for it. I've met some incredible people in my life that have showed me in humbly and Christ-honoring ways that it's okay to totally, totally disagree, but still love. And I think we need to learn this lesson. Why? Because it creates unity in the body. Even though we disagree, it creates unity here. And what happens when we create unity here? We teach angels what God's wisdom looks like. And to the degree that we allow ourselves to be divided by, by pitiful little things, to that same degree, we rob angels of the opportunity to learn. You say, wow, Matthew, that's really arrogant and self-centered. Well, it's what Paul says. He says, the church reveals the manifold wisdom of God to angels. So you and I have a responsibility to live in unity with each other. We, yes, we'll disagree, but we have a responsibility to live together as a body. And I guarantee you, as I've seen so many times in my life, that if we walk unified, the world notice that, notices that. They want community. They want connectedness. They want forgiveness. They want mercy. They want diversity. They want all these things. And we in Christ can deliver that as we are pursuing God together. 
In premarital counseling, we oftentimes talk about this triangle, triangle where there's the husband and wife down here and there's God at the top. And if you pursue each other, you'll be distant from God. But if you pursue God together, by nature, you will come together, right? As you get closer to the pinnacle. Same is true with us. We've got like a 500-point triangle here. I don't even know what that's called in geometry. But we're all pursuing God together, right? And as we pursue God together, we become closer and closer and closer and closer. And as we do that, the world will notice. God will be honored. The angels will learn what God's wisdom looks like. And we will be pleasing to the Father and be much, much happier with each other too. I think when Paul's talking about the mystery of the gospel of uniting all things in him, he's talking about us being faithful, exerting energy, and being with each other in fellowship. I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about being with each other in relationship, talking, discussing, arguing, disagreeing at times, but still standing together on the things that bring us together, and that is Christ. The truth of the gospel, the power of the word, the presence of the spirit. We need, we need to bear our responsibility for the gospel. We need to remember our unity through the gospel, and we need to glory in the gospel. Last week, last two weeks ago, I talked about glorifying God, and this I'm thinking of, Paul very clearly sees the joy of the gospel message. When you glory in something, you find joy. You find something to rejoice about in it. And so I ask us, do we, do we rejoice in the gospel? Do we rejoice in the fact that God has saved us, that God has united us? Paul gets so excited about this idea that he re, re, he erupts into praise. He erupts into doxologies at different times. He erupts into prayer. This is really deep for Paul, and it should be really deep for us. He closes this section that we're in in chapter 3. He closes it with what is the closest thing to a word of instruction, or excuse me, a commandment in the first three chapters. He says, in light of all of these things, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I think losing heart is something we struggle with. I think as a culture, as a people, as a church, as individuals, we struggle with holding on to our hearts. Now the word for that is hope, right? It was two years ago last week that I preached for the first time and I preached on this topic and you all remember what the definition of hope is, right? None of you? Wow. So disappointed. Hope is the decision to wait for God because we trust his promises, we trust his person, we trust his timing. Hope is a decision to wait. Paul says, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for the gospel because it's for your glory. It should, rejoice, it should result in rejoicing for you. And so I think in my life, I need to develop this reminder that my life at times really stinks. It's hard, it's challenging. There's blockades, there's turns, there's twists. I don't know what the future holds. Sometimes I think I know what the future holds and I get a curveball thrown at me. Does that happen to you? Life is not easy, but we have a God who is an anchor, right? And he has sent his son to die on the cross for us, not just so that we can be saved and get to heaven, but so that we can declare his glory and his wisdom in the way that we live out in unity. We need to be a responsible, unified, joy-filled body to the Father's glory. 
That's Paul's message in Romans, or excuse me, Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. Let's pray. Father, your word is amazing that we can look at it and see so many different pieces. So we can look at it like, like your wisdom is multifaceted. Your word is multifaceted. God, we want to be challenged by it today. We want to be, uh, we want to be changed. God, we want to be able to see ourselves. We want to be able to recognize where we are now in relation to where you want us to be. We want to be able to see these things so that when we leave this place, we are changed in the way that we live, that we we, we have a, a, a filter through which we understand the things around us. God, we want to have patience with the people who are our friends, our neighbors, those in the community around us. We want to be uh, tight-knit with those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to model for the world what unity looks like. God, we don't want hate and bitterness and rage and anger and frustration and discord and strife and struggle and war to be evident in us. We want peace because the hostility had been killed. We are no longer separated. We're no longer dead. We're now alive. We're now unified. We're now brought together. And God, this through the mystery of the gospel of your amazing grace. I pray, Father, that you would change us even today. I pray for those here right now that in their spirit, maybe they've never felt it before, but they feel like they need to just do something right now. They need to pray. They need to come forward. They need to talk to the person next to them. They need to just go be by themselves. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that you would stir in them to come to you. I pray that we would be people that look for opportunities to bring others together. I pray, Father, that you would be honored. You would be glorified. You would be magnified in what we do, how we live, how we think, the decisions we make the heart with which we live. God, I pray that you do this in us, not just today, but every day until we see the sky open up and Jesus comes. We pray that in his precious and holy and wonderful and unifying name, the name of Jesus.